And I wanna take a moment to say on behalf of our family how much we appreciate your love and support and prayers during the birth of our daughter, Kinsley. It was certainly an interesting and unique time to be having a baby. Uh, We were frustrated to not be able to share her as quickly and freely as we obviously were able to do with the boys, but even so, uh, even from a distance or virtually or remotely or however, uh, you have certainly made your presence felt. Uh, We appreciate the gift of the church, diapers and wipes. Uh, Many individuals gave different things, just your text, your calls, uh, various ways you've expressed uh, your love and happiness for us. We are thankful to God for you, and we appreciate you very much. We've been thinking a lot about birth in our uh, home the last several months during Kelsey's pregnancy and then Kinsley's delivery and now having a newborn. And I want to talk for a little while this morning about the spiritual new birth process. And we want to look at what Jesus taught concerning this subject in John chapter 3. And if you want to follow along in your Bible, Mark John chapter 3, we'll be referring back to this passage and these verses throughout the course of our study this morning. John chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? I want to begin by asking you, are you a born-again Christian? You say, well, that, you say, well, that's a very direct and personal question. You give it a very direct and personal answer because you can't afford not to be. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. So this subject then is as important and critical as any subject we could ever study. And first, we must know and define what does it mean to be a born-again Christian? How do we become a born-again Christian, and understand there are no other types of Christians but born-again Christians. Accept, unless, means if, and only if. And people claim all the time, you hear politicians, athletes, celebrities, maybe neighbors, co-workers talk about how they are born-again Christians, but what does that mean? And how did they become a born-again Christian? Because instead of being born of water in the Spirit, Many are told to accept Jesus as their personal Savior and invite them, Him into their heart and recite a sinner's prayer. In fact, nearly anything can constitute a new birth experience except, ironically, what Jesus actually taught in John chapter 3. And so as we talk about what it means to be a born-again Christian, how we become a born-again Christian, I think as often is the case with many subjects and concepts to reaffirm and reinforce and make clear the truth It's often helpful 
to consider what something is not to understand what something is. So we want to begin by looking at a few false doctrines and misunderstandings about what Jesus taught in John 3 regarding the new birth. First, many people will talk about how this new birth experience is something so mystical you can't even understand it. You can't comprehend it. You can't express it. You might not even know how it happened or when it happened. Because of the influence of the prevalent doctrines of Calvinism and direct operation of the Spirit, total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, the Spirit comes into your heart, converts you, changes you, and you don't even know how it happened. It's, it's better felt than told. If it can't be comprehended, then why did, and it can't be expressed, then why did Jesus express it to us? Why did the apostles express it to us? Why did Jesus demand that we go and express it to other people in the Great Commission? But many believe that verse 8 in this passage is teaching this concept. One of the more challenging verses, admittedly, in this passage. But understanding the context is critical in understanding verse 8. In fact, I believe verse 6 is the key in understanding verse 8. You have to understand, what's Jesus trying to get Nicodemus to understand? You need to quit thinking physically about a physical birth and think about this spiritual birth. Something you can't see, but you see the effects and feel the effects. The spiritual reality is just as much real. The things that you can't see as the things that you do see. That's the context, whatever verse 8 means. Some would argue that the word wind, it's the Greek word pneuma, that's translated spirit throughout the Bible and even in this very passage. So they'll say it really should say maybe the spirit speaks where it wishes, and maybe it's talking about the work of the Spirit and our salvation by inspiring the Word of God, revealing God's plan of salvation so that we can respond to it. But whatever verse 8 means, nothing in there is said about it being so mystical that you can't comprehend and understand how you become a born-again Christian. Listen, we know that we're saved by complying with God's plan of salvation, by being born again of water and of the Spirit. And if we don't do that, we can know that we're not saved regardless of how we felt during some mystical experience. We aren't saved because we feel good. Rather, we should feel good because we know that we are saved. Another prevalent false doctrine concerning the new birth is that many people have tried to reinterpret the term water and claim that water does not actually mean water in John chapter 3. And I want to show you some of the arguments that are made to try to do that. Many have such a prejudice against baptism and God's plan of salvation that they will go to great lengths and efforts and mental gymnastics to try to explain away clear terms used by the Holy Spirit here in John chapter 3. Have defined baptism as a work. They'll say we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith only, a misunderstanding of what faith means and justification by faith and what works are. The Bible speaks of multiple types of works, works that save and works that don't save. In fact, Jesus said faith, believing itself, John 6, is a work. What kind of work? A work of God. Paul often talks about works of the old law that don't save. We're not saved by the works of Moses. We're not saved by the works of the flesh. That's why we need salvation. We're not saved by works of merit, which means that in our perfection, God owes us salvation because we have not broken the law, therefore we're not saved by grace, but through our merit or our perfection. Those works certainly don't save. But there's another category of works the Bible frequently speaks of, works of God. Works required and approved by God to be saved. Not that we earn salvation in our perfection, but we have faith and trust in the plan of God. And we submit to the plan of God. It's interesting, you talk about baptism's role in salvation, and many people will claim water salvation. You believe in water salvation. 
It's interesting, if you look in verse 14 of John 3, Jesus talked about how he would be lifted up on the cross like Moses lifted up the bronze serpent. Children of Israel being punished and dying and being bitten by snakes and God had a plan of salvation and you had to obey. You had to submit to that plan and look to that snake on a pole. Would many cry out, snake salvation. Historically, early Christians and New Testament scholars have taught that the water in John 3 is a clear and obvious reference to baptism. It's only within the last couple hundred years through these doctrines of Calvinism that many have tried to reinterpret what Jesus clearly taught. You can't dehydrate baptism. John baptized in water. Jesus and the apostles baptized in water. If you were a person living in the first century without any denominational agendas and biases and theories, how would you interpret John 3 verse 5? And it's interesting that early Christians, many of whom writings we have, studied under the apostles, people like Tertullian and Cyprian and Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, writing about John 3 verse 5 said, it's talking about baptism. In fact, some scholars have argued that after Nicodemus' misunderstanding of what Jesus taught in John chapter 3, this passage was not misunderstood until John Calvin, hundreds of years later. John Calvin Justification by faith, the response to what Catholicism had done, all works and no faith, and as often is the case, we swing that pendulum. And now we've got to come up with a system or a plan that takes all the responsibility off of man. Irresistible grace, unconditional election, total depravity. Baptism has no role because they had corrupted baptism to be a sacrament and that there was mystical power in the water instead of the blood of Jesus. Because of that perversion, he responded with another perversion in the opposite extreme. And even Calvin admitted that his teachings about baptism were new. And so to get around water in John 3, 5 being a reference to baptism, many will say, well, John 3, 5, Romans 6, many of the passages we'll look at this morning about baptism are talking about spirit baptism. A spirit baptism during your conversion, not literal water baptism. What's interesting, though, is you study the purpose of spirit baptism, you'll find just a couple times, very unique for specific reasons. We see in Acts 2 and Acts 10, Jesus promised to baptize the apostles with the Spirit to equip them, to be inspired to write the rest of the New Testament, revealing the will of God to us, to confirm that what they wrote was truly from God through miracles. They needed those abilities to get the church up and running and off the ground and complete the written revelation of God. That was the purpose. We see that spirit baptism was promised by Jesus, was administered by Jesus, poured down from heaven. Baptism commanded of humans, administered by humans. Baptism to be obeyed was always in water. You can differentiate spirit baptism between water baptism very easily. The Bible teaches in Romans 6 and other places that baptism is a burial and resurrection from the same substance. And if that substance, you would be resurrected out of the Spirit, now without the Spirit. But the Bible says in Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. But burial and resurrection from the same substance makes perfect sense if that substance is water. 1 Peter 3, the Bible clearly connects water with baptism. Notice what Peter here says about our salvation. Comparing it to Noah and his family's salvation from the flood, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Many 
try to claim John 3, 5, that water there is an allusion to the Spirit because sometimes the Spirit is described by the term water. But if that's the case, Jesus would have repeated himself and said, you must be born of Spirit and Spirit to enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice there are two elements but one birth. He's not talking about two births, one at the altar and one months later when you have a public display of your previous conversion. Two elements, one birth. Else Jesus would say you need to be born again and again. So if this isn't spirit baptism, the other attempt to avoid water meaning baptism in John 3 verse 5 that's commonly made today is that the water that Jesus speaks of in John 3, 5 is amniotic fluid as part of the mother's physical birth process. And you might think that's ridiculous. That might sound absurd to you, but I've actually heard this argument made on multiple occasions. In fact, recently I had a a boss and we were studying and he wanted to study baptism. And I thought, well, that's great. And we studied it over months and we went in depth on 100 plus references to baptism in the New Testament, the conversion examples in Acts. And obviously in the course of that, we talked about what Jesus taught about the new birth in John 3, verse 5. And that troubled him greatly because where he went to church, his worldview, his concept of God's plan of salvation, all faith, no works, believe only, the sinner's prayer, baptism's a work, you can't be saved by works. That concept that's so prevalent, he ascribed to. And so how do I explain John 3, 5 without admitting that it's a reference to baptism? Because if I admit it's a reference to baptism, Jesus has clearly said and taught that you have to be baptized to be saved, that that's what water means. And so we talked about some of the arguments that are made to try to avoid water meaning baptism, and we talked about how probably the most common argument made is that it's amniotic fluid. And he kind of chuckled when I said that to him. He, said, he thought, that's ridiculous, that's absurd. But he was troubled. He went home. It's often done. Got on the internet. Got on forums, message boards, trying to find some way to explain John chapter 3, 5. And he came back later. It broke my heart. And said, well, it's got to be amniotic fluid. After laughing about it, after making fun of it, <laughs> it's the only thing he could do with it. The only argument to be made. Think about the context here. What would be the point of Jesus telling Nicodemus that? You know, what's ironic is that's the very misunderstanding Nicodemus had. He's thinking about a physical birth, and Jesus corrected him. Think, you're not thinking about this right. He's thinking about a physical birth, the very argument people are making when they say that water is amniotic fluid. And what would be the point? Before you can be born spiritually, you have to be born physically via amniotic fluid. Before you can be born spiritually, you have to be a real person. That's a truism that's unnecessary for Jesus to make. What's he trying to say? Animals can't enter the kingdom of heaven? You have to be a human? You have to be a person? What about people today that are born by C-section? In processes that don't involve amniotic fluid, are they ineligible to be born spiritually into the kingdom of God? And finally, notice the context in John chapter 3. As you read on in verse 23, it says, John was baptizing in a certain place because there was much water there. What does water mean? One of the fundamental principles of hermeneutics is you always define terms the way they are commonly defined and used, literally, unless there's a good reason in the context to define them symbolically or in another way. What does water mean throughout the Bible? It throws the Bible into utter confusion. Was John baptizing in this place because there was much amniotic fluid there or because there was much water there? Did Philip and the eunuch go down into the water or did they go down into the amniotic fluid? 
And Jesus told Nicodemus, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? Not only can these things be understood, these simple and fundamental truths about salvation, but they must be understood if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. And so we want to transition now, talking about false doctrines concerning the new birth, to the truth about the new birth. When we think about the birth experience, it involves a begetting, an implantation of seed. We understand how that works, a bringing forth or a delivery, and finally, the state into which one enters as a result of that process, into a family relationship with inheritance privileges. And we see that to be the case concerning the spiritual new birth. It starts with parentage. The Bible frequently describes God as our Father. And think about the great lengths and efforts in pain. Someone suffered in tremendous pain to bring you forth physically. Think about our children. We went in the first one with Kyson at 5 a.m. to induce him, and we had to smoke him out. He wasn't born until the next day. It took forever. And they had this little bench in the room, and it was uncomfortable, and I laid on that bench, and I was sleep-deprived, and I didn't get to eat my meals on it. And I hope you understand I am joking because we know, you know, I know, Kelsey's the one who suffered in pain to deliver our children. But spiritually, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit labored and suffered in tremendous pain to deliver us from sin and bring us forth into the kingdom of heaven. And we need to appreciate that. Our new birth starts with that parentage, the begetting of God. John writes about being born of God. How? By direct operation of the Spirit, separate and apart from the Word, as Calvinism teaches. Does the Spirit work to convict and convert us directly by coming into our heart apart from the Word of God, or does He do it indirectly via an instrument or an agency or a medium? Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, seeing you have purified your soul, think about water and washing. We're going to be talking a lot about John 3, the water, purification, Purifying your souls, how? By obeying the truth through the Spirit. Notice truth and Spirit connected because the Spirit reveals that truth to us so that we can obey it and be purified and washed in the blood of Jesus. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, how? By direct operation of the Spirit, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. James wrote the same thing in James 1, verse 18, of his own will beget he us with what? The Word of truth. Paul wrote the same thing. Sword of the Spirit, the instrument the Spirit uses is the Word of God, Ephesians 6, verse 17. Jesus in the parable of the sower, this fundamental parable, he said, you've got to understand this. How are you going to understand anything else? The sower sows the Word. That's the seed of the kingdom. That's what begets us and brings us to life. And it's interesting, he said absolutely nothing in this fundamental parable about how people enter the kingdom of God. He said absolutely nothing about a direct operation of the Spirit. Listen, you won't find Christians where the Word of God or the gospel or missionaries haven't gone. Isn't that interesting? If the Spirit's going to do that directly without the need of the Word of God, why wouldn't we find Christians where the Word of God hasn't gone? Because it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How can they hear without a preacher? That's the seed of the kingdom. And so through this begetting... By obeying the truth, we are delivered, we are brought forth of water in the Spirit into this relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Paul described it in various ways. He talks about a marriage, he talks about an adoption, he talks about a grafting, and he talks about being translated out of the power of darkness, translated into the kingdom of his dear Son. The same terminology Jesus used in John 3. According to Jesus, the goal of the new birth is entrance into the kingdom of God. 
He said in Matthew 16, the kingdom is the church. Paul says in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1, the church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ, the church of Christ, the kingdom of God, the same institution. How do we get into that institution? Galatians 3, verse 26 and 27, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Someone says, see, faith only. John 3, 16. All you got to do is believe. The interesting thing about John 3, 16 says nothing about repenting. Other verses say you got to repent to be saved. Say you got to be baptized to be saved without saying anything about believing. How do we harmonize that? How do we recognize? Does the Bible contradict itself? The way we harmonize that is by recognizing you got to put it all together. One verse has not contained the entire plan of salvation. The interesting thing about John 3, and I love John 3, 16. <laughs> love that verse. But you know, prior to that verse, Jesus talks about baptism in that very chapter. After that verse, we have a reference to baptism we read earlier. Multiple references to baptism in John 3. Mark 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. In perfect harmony. Notice verse 26, you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. John 1 says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Notice, they didn't immediately become children of God. They had the power, the privilege, the right to become a child of God. A marriage license gives you the right to get married, but it doesn't make you married immediately. You are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. How? You have the right to become a child of God. How? Verse 27 tells us how. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Until we have been baptized into Christ, we're not in Christ. We're not translated into the kingdom. We haven't put on Christ. We are spiritually naked outside of Christ, outside of the kingdom where all heavenly blessings are found until we've been baptized into Christ. Faith gives us the right to become a child of God. And verse 27 tells us how, that Greek word for for there. What follows after that word is the meaning of how you become a child of God through faith. James says in James 2, faith without works is dead. The devils believe... Are the devils born-again Christians? Faith means something more than mentally acknowledging, I believe that God exists and Jesus is His Son. Acts 2, as Peter preaches this gospel sermon on the birthday of the church, here are the first born-again Christians. What do they have to do to become a born-again Christian? Because that's the same thing we have to do to become a born-again Christian. He proves to them that Jesus is the Son of God through evidences, and they believe those evidences because they're pricked in their hearts, and they ask, what must we do? Notice Peter didn't rebuke them by implying they had to do something and give the response that many preachers would give today. What are you talking about? You don't have to do anything. You already believe, accept Jesus into your heart, say the sinner's prayer. He commands them to do something. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Be saved from this perverse generation. Enter into this relationship with God. Those that gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, into the church. Verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. The word church means the called out, called out of sin, called out of the world. This translation into the kingdom of God, into this new relationship. The word church means the saved. You cannot enter into a state of salvation, to the institution of salvation, until you believe, repent, and are baptized. So I want to look at three parallel passages that are very similar in their construction to John 3. The Bible does not contradict itself, and so we should be able to harmonize these passages quite nicely. 
1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul writes, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Somebody says, that's Spirit baptism. Multiple references to Spirit. Spirit baptism. Notice this baptism puts you into Christ, into the kingdom, into the church. And we've already seen that baptism is always water baptism. And notice the parallel to John 3, 5. In John 3, 5, you have Spirit, water, kingdom. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you have spirit, baptism, which is what the water is, and body, which is the same thing as the church and the kingdom. Exact same language that Jesus used in John 3, 5. Ephesians 5, 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, speaking of the church, with the washing of water by the word. You have the word, which is the agency of the spirit, the work of the spirit. You have the washing of water, which is baptism, and you have a sanctified, cleansed, saved church, which is the same thing as the body and kingdom. Titus chapter 3, we don't have time to break this passage down in its entirety. I want to give you a quick summary of what Paul is talking about in Titus chapter 3. He says, we humans are completely lost because of our own foolish, disobedient actions. That's verse 3. And because of that, previous verses, we need to be meek and gentle towards others who maybe aren't born again yet because God has been meek and merciful towards us. Verse 4, loving God, sending our Savior because of His mercy and goodness and love and grace was His plan of salvation. That's in Christ alone, in Jesus Christ our Savior, verse 6, which is a manifestation of His grace. How? How does He save us by His grace? Verse 5, and we want to spend some time dissecting verse 5 in the Greek in verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. God doesn't save us because of our works of righteousness. We don't earn our salvation, but He does save us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? We must understand what the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost is so that we can be saved. What does that mean? Commentators, grammarians... Founders of different denominations, including John Calvin, have recognized over the centuries that Titus 3, verse 5, when it speaks of washing of regeneration, is a clear reference to baptism. Again, only within the last couple hundred centuries have men had to reinterpret this passage because, again, just like John 3, 5, if this is a reference to baptism, then Paul, just like Jesus, has made it clear you have to be baptized to be saved. I want you to notice something very interesting about verse 5. He says that we aren't saved by works of righteousness, which we have done, but we are saved by washing of regeneration. If that is a reference to baptism, then baptism is not a work of righteousness, which we have done, but rather, as Paul says in Colossians 2, it's the work of God, having faith in the operation of God. Baptism is the work that does save, the work of God, the work required and approved by God as part of His salvation. Not anything we're doing to merit or earn through our perfection, salvation, but having faith in the death, burial, and resurrection and blood of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not a work of righteousness, which we have done, but it is a work of the mercy and grace of God. You know, it's interesting. It's as if the Holy Spirit anticipated this no works, no baptism dogma and controversy that would develop and wanted to remove all doubt. This is the language selected by the Holy Spirit, the very Greek words the Holy Spirit selected. Notice he says, by the washing of regeneration. Why would he save us? Why would he regenerate us from sin? He saved us by the washing of regeneration 
What would washing have to do with our salvation? Why would he connect? That's what the word by means, through this, through washing. What's the connection with washing to salvation? Greek word dia. Why would he save us through the washing of regeneration? The word washing, the Greek word lutron, means a laver or a bath. Many believe this is an allusion to the laver of water outside the tabernacle that they had to wash in to enter into the tabernacle, the presence of God, a type of the church. You have to be washed, you have to be baptized into Christ to put on Christ. So when we look at Titus 3 and we sum up what Paul is teaching here, who saved us? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What do they offer us? Justification, the hope of eternal life, salvation. Where? In Christ alone. Why? Because of the kindness, love, mercy, and grace of God. When? At the moment of the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Note the Greek word translated regeneration is palingenesis. Palin meaning again, genesis meaning birth. The very language Jesus used in talking about the role of water in salvation when he talked about being born again. That's the word regeneration. Renewal of the Holy Spirit recognizes the Holy Spirit communicated God's plan of salvation through the written word. Brought God's plan of salvation to us and as we obey the truth, we purify our souls as we read earlier in becoming a Christian. That's how that renewal occurs. So I want you to notice as we harmonize these parallel passages, Jesus taught in John 3, 5, spirit, water, kingdom. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, spirit, baptized, which explains what the water is, body, same thing as kingdom. Ephesians 5, 26, the word, which is the instrument and agency of the spirit, same thing. Washing of water, church, same thing as body and kingdom. Titus 3, 5, the Holy Spirit, the washing of regeneration, which is clearly baptism, Saved, which is what the church literally means. The called out, the saved. Revelation 1, 5, speaking of Jesus, says that he washed us from our sins in his own blood. If we are saved by washing of regeneration, that washing of regeneration is being washed in the blood of Jesus. It's not the water, it's the blood. The question is, when do we have this washing of regeneration where we are washed in the blood of Jesus? Acts 22 It's interesting, we talked about the Greek word lutron and talking about a bath, this washing. When you find that word used in the New Testament and its derivatives, you'll find that it's in reference to a cleansing from sin at the point of conversion. Study those references, those times lutron or one of its derivatives is used. And it's talking about salvation, conversion, this washing from sin. One of those examples, a derivative of lutron, is in Acts 22, 16, and speaking of Paul's conversion, where it says, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins. When are our sins washed away in the blood of Jesus? When we're baptized. I want to mention some things about Romans chapter 6. Parallel passage to Galatians 3, it talks about putting on Christ and being baptized into Christ and obeying the gospel and what the gospel is. And we don't want to spend time doing that. We've already talked about the role of baptism and salvation. I want to really look at what Paul is talking about and addressing Christians at Rome as they look back at their conversion, their initial conversion when they became a Christian when they were baptized. But I want to point out what Paul is emphasizing about what we do after we're baptized. Essentially, what he's saying is your immersion has to continue after baptism. You have to continue to go in, all in, after baptism. What does my baptism mean to me? What does my new birth mean to me? 
What does this renewal mean to me? We died. You died with Christ. You were buried with him in baptism, raised with him to walk a newness of life and seek those things that are above. I have a changed in spiritual perspective. I'm dead to sin. I no longer live in it. Jesus says in John 3, 19 through 21, he talked about, do you love the light? Do you walk in the light or do you love and walk in darkness? Was there any kind of change? Was there any kind of renewal? Paul talked about putting off the old man and putting on the new man, being renewed in knowledge, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans chapter 12, being renewed in the inward man day by day. What did your new birth do for you? What does it mean to you? Were you born again? Were you renewed by the Holy Spirit or did you just get wet? And as we offer an invitation, I want to again ask the same question I began with. Are you a born-again Christian? Were you born again according to the teachings of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit? Are you born again? Maybe you're here and you did follow that process. You were born of water and the Spirit, but maybe you need to be renewed and transformed in the renewing of your mind. Putting on Christ is something that we do initially at baptism, but we have to do every day as we crucify and put off the flesh and we put on Jesus. Clothing ourselves, manifesting the fruits of the Spirit that characterizes spiritual life. And maybe you need to be renewed this morning. Maybe you need to think back, as Paul reminded the Romans, the Roman Christians, about your baptism and your initial conversion and what that should mean for you and what that should do to you. The great thing about being born again and washed in the blood of Jesus and regenerated in the blood of Jesus, John writes in 1 John that if we will confess our sins and repent and strive to walk in the light, He is faithful to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. And as you study the word for cleanse and the concept John is talking about in 1 John 1, it's not like a faucet that just gets turned on and off occasionally. It's like He left the faucet on. And that blood continues to wash your sins away as you confess and as you strive to walk with him in the light. And if you need that renewal, if you need that cleansing as a Christian this morning, if we can pray for you, if we can help you this morning, we're ready to do that. If you have not been born again of water and the Spirit in the kingdom of God, we would plead with you, we would beg you to make the most important and critical decision you'll ever make in your life. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven until you are born of water and the Spirit. And so if you believe, repent, and are baptized, will you not be born again into the kingdom of God if you don't do that? If you aren't born of water and the Spirit, if you don't obey Jesus and do what they had to do as recorded in the book of Acts 2,000 years ago, will anything less get you in now? Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. If you need a new birth this morning, the Lord invites you to come. Please have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together.